Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. It's one of the most important topics I think we could ever talk about. I think the way that we handle our sexuality as Christians is one of the more, uh, kind of one of those most uh, important areas of our life. It's one of those uh, make or break areas. And uh, what I want to do is, uh, is talk to you, just give you kind of a brief overview of where we're going the next uh, five months. First of all, today what we're going to be talking about is kind of what the Bible teaches about sex uh, and, and why this whole sexual purity thing is so important. And so we're going to be kind of a, it's kind of a broad study. In fact, we'll be doing more, than time, more time in, than usual today in the Bible, just doing Bible study together. Then we'll come back next month, and, and the topic is what it takes to have great sex. Now, before I came, my wife asked who is teaching that. Uh, <laughs> So I'll be looking for a guest speaker, but uh, no, seriously, uh, you know, as we'll see today, if, if it is true that God created sex and it's his idea, which we're going to talk about later, then you'd think that he probably knows the, the, the best how it works, and, and so we're going to be talking about what does it take to have great sex. Uh, number three, then the third month, uh, in the month of October, we're going to talk, come, come at it from the negative side and talk about the high cost of illicit sex. Uh, sex obviously is very uh, appealing on the surface, but there's often some price tags, some small print, you might say, that we don't always read. And so we want to talk about what the high cost of illicit sex is. Then in November, we will talk about um, how to set your standards. You know, as Christians, we know, and the Bible is very clear, that sex outside marriage is, is uh, wrong. But it's not always super clear on, well, where is the line then? There's a lot of ground between holding hands and sleeping with someone. And how do you set those standards? And so that'll be our topic for November. And then finally, in December, we'll come back and talk about strategies for success. Because it's one thing to set your standards. It is another thing to keep your standards. And so we want to talk about after we set them, how do we keep them? And so that's the kind of overview of the next five months. And I really want to encourage you to join us every one of the months because these topics will cert uh, certainly dovetail and build on one another. If you cannot be here uh, one month, I encourage you when you come back the next month, be sure to pick up the tape so you kind of can uh, catch up with us. Now, before we jump into what the Bible teaches about sex, I, I want to start with a couple opening thoughts. And these are really thoughts about me and what I bring to the table, both in, in terms of strength and weakness, in terms of addressing this topic, sex in the single life. The, uh, the obvious weakness that I bring is that I'm married. And so there is a credibility issue right off the bat. I can almost bet that at some point in this series, you're going to be saying or tempted to say, uh, maybe the evil one will even come to you and say, this is really easy for him to say. What does he know about this? You know, boy, you're coming on kind of strong here. And uh, I just want to admit right off the bat, I mean, that is true, that, uh, that I am in a different spot in my life than you are in your life. And so uh, instead of trying to pretend I'm not, I'm going to say that is absolutely true. But here's what I'd like you to, to think of me as in the next few months. I would like you to think of me as your coach in this area of your life. Now, you know how a coach works. A coach is usually the overweight old guy on the sidelines. <laughs> who couldn't play the game if his life depended on it, you know? But his value to the team is not that he can run the floor and, and slam, uh, slam dunk it at the other end. His value is that he knows how to play the game. He knows what it takes to win. 
And so what I, what I you know, would bring to the table, or what I, I, the way I'd like you to look at me the, last, uh, the next few months, is not as someone who's playing the game the same way you are. I have, I'm in a different game. But, but uh, look at me as your coach, someone who has been called alongside to help you win, who knows how to help you win. Then on the, on the positive side, you know, I've got, I have that weakness side, but on the strength side, I think I bring a couple strengths to the table. And the first strength is, is that God has really blessed Lynn and I with a very good marriage. And, you know, this last spring, we, we uh, celebrated our 25th uh, wedding anniversary. And, yeah, it's just a great thing. And, and you know, um, one of the things that, that Lynn and I have seen over the years is the longer we walk with Jesus, the more his rules make sense. And, and the longer that we're married and enjoy that married relationship, the more it makes sense to me, oh, I get it, why sex outside of marriage is wrong. It's almost like when you're a little kid, sometimes you, know, you have parents and they say you can't do this and you can't do that. And it doesn't make sense and you just think that sometimes they're being mean or they're out to get you. And, but as the older you get, the smarter your parents become. You know? And it's like, oh, well, okay, that one makes sense and now this one makes sense. And, and I think oftentimes as Christians it's like that, that God's rules often look very limiting at the front end, but the longer we walk with him, the more we go, oh, I get it. And I think that's been not certainly my experience, that the longer I'm married and enjoy that marriage relationship, the more I say, oh, yeah, this part that is so special, that would be ruined you know, if we'd done it a different way. And so uh, that's one thing I bring to the table. The other thing is, is that um, you know, for the last six years, I've had the privilege of being your leader here at Single Purpose. And obviously, that means I've walked with so many of you through this, this whole area of sexuality. I've had the privilege of walking through many, with many of you that you've done it God's way, that through the teaching we've provided here and so on, you've said, okay, I'm going to do it that way. And you've come back time and time again to say, Mike, it's incredible. This is the best relationship we've ever had. It's so different because we're doing it God's way. You know? And so I've seen that side of it. I've also seen the pain of going through so, with so many people in the last six years of doing it outside of God's way and the way their lives are ruined and the way their lives are ripped apart. And so what I bring, I guess, to this series is those six years of experience, you know, of being able to just in a short amount of time go through with a ton of people, through the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, of, of this whole area of sexuality. And so what I'm bringing is all those years of experience so we can kind of speed model and speed learn together off of one another's experience. So those are a couple opening thoughts as we begin. And I just want to warn you because... I am almost certain, in fact, last week I knew I had a ton of material to go over. We do again tonight. And I just was so much like I wanted to skip this section. Just, let's just jump right in. But what I really believe is that I do believe that there will come times in this series where Satan will come to you and he will try to discredit the truth I'm bringing you because he will say, what does he know? He doesn't have to do this. He doesn't know how hard it is. He doesn't know what he's up against. And he will try to use that strategy to undercut God's truth in your life. And what I want to do is just take that away from him right now at the beginning of the series and say, hey, I admit it. I'm not in the same game. I'm the fat old coach on the sideline, but I know how this game is played, okay? And so that's what I want to do is just be a coach to you during these next few months. Now, what we want to do today is, and there in your note sheet, it says what God says about sex, four key principles. And we want to talk about sexuality and, and take some time to talk about God's perspective on it. And uh, there's, there's just four principles we're going to look at. The first one by far is the longest. We will spend the most time here. So if by the end of point one you're getting worried like, hey, we're not going to get out of here till midnight, I promise you by 11 we'll be out. Okay, so uh, number one. Number one, the first principle, the place we need to start is that sex is a God thing. This is point number one, that sex is a God thing. In other words, that 
you know, he created this. You know, I think that oftentimes this comes as a surprise. Somehow we know it in our head, but when we start to talk about the whole topic of sexuality, we often act as if this is something that God just kind of stumbled onto. You know, it's kind of an oversight in the plans. You know, it's kind of, you kind of, oh my goodness, what did I do? You know, gee, look at that. You know, what a bummer. And what do I do now? And okay, at least I'll make babies out of it. And uh, so it, it was kind of like not his idea, but the, 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 the fact of the matter is, obviously God created sex. And, and what I, I like to call it his Disneyland for couples. That he, that he has, not only did he, he create it, but he designed it as this kind of like Disneyland, you know, uh, uh, fun park. For, for couples to enjoy together. And I think that, uh, that this is so contrary to what the average person, the way they would look at sex. In fact, if you were to interview people, it'd be fun to do this, uh, you know, go to the mall and do one of those little interviews or whatever. Uh, to ask the average man or woman on the street, you know, what do you think God thinks about sex? I think that by and large, most people would say that, yeah, I think he's, you know, kind of down on it. Uh, that, uh, that, you know, that's sort of a necessary evil, maybe. Uh, and uh, that, that if nothing else, you know, it's, least, it's one of those things you should definitely do with the, with the lights off because you don't want to offend him, you know, that kind of a deal. And I think that uh, as Christians, we have often fallen into that trap as well. And this is one of the enemy's ways to destroy us because right off the bat, he wants to convince us that this is, is something that God wants to hold back, hold us from, you know, to keep us uh, from enjoying. Um, Throughout church history, the church has often fallen into this trap. In fact, we're going to look at a slide on PowerPoint here that uh, talks about uh, kind of the middle and during the Middle Ages how Christians looked at it. It goes like this. During the Middle Ages, Christian couples were encouraged to abstain from sex on Thursday out of respect for the Lord's Supper because that was instituted by Jesus on Monday, Thursday. On Friday for the crucifixion. On Saturday for the Virgin Mary. On Sunday for the resurrection. And on Monday, in memory of the poor departed souls with whom by this time they felt very sympathetic. <laughs> Hence their slogan became, thank God it's Tuesday. Uh, you know, T-G-I-T. And uh, it, it's amazing how many times throughout church history the church has fallen into this trap of the enemy. You know, that, that sex is really something that is kind of a necessary evil. There in your note sheet, and we'll have several quotes in this series that I think will be helpful that I often print for you so you have them for your records and can look at them later. But uh, C.S. Lewis talked about a, in a proper, kind of a true Christian view of sex, and why don't you follow along? It says, the old Christian teachers said that if man had never fallen, that sexual pleasure, instead of being less than it is now, would actually have been greater. I know some muddle-headed Christians, <laughs> I like that, have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions that thoroughly approves of the body. Christianity has glorified marriage more than any other religion, and nearly all the greatest love poetry in the world has been produced by Christians. If anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. And so I think this is where we have to begin, that, that sex is a God thing. Now, now, you might say, well, Mike, I'd like a little proof on that. Or you might say, I'd like to believe that. But, you know, I just have a lot of old baggage and the way I look at it, the way I was brought up or whatever in certain church backgrounds. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to do a little Bible study together. 
And we're going to look at five passages that talk about sex in the Bible and see if we can get God's perspective on this. Now, hopefully you brought your Bible. If, you, if you're new to single purpose, I want to encourage you to always bring your Bibles because we will always use them. If you didn't bring your Bible, then look on with your neighbor who has one because they're in church. They have to share. Uh, <laughs> this might be the one time all week they ha- they're being nice. They have to be. So you're really doing them a favor. Okay, first passage is Genesis chapter 2. And of course, this is the first uh, marriage ceremony where, where God performs this ceremony. Uh, by the way, my daughter's getting married next weekend. A lot of you know that. I'm very excited about that. And uh, I'm doing the ceremony. And so I'll see if I can make it through that. But it's in, the, it's in your announcement sheet. But you are just welcome, any of you are welcome to come to that ceremony. It's uh, Saturday, 10 o'clock, next, uh, next, not tomorrow, but next week. So we're going to have a great time. Okay, well, this is the first wedding ceremony. In chapter 2, verse 21, let's read it together. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord uh, made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So he starts with one. He takes a part of the one, makes another one. Okay, so we got one plus one. Uh, But in God's math, one plus one equals one. And so the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It's interesting. In the Hebrew, it says she shall be called Isha, for she's taken out of Ish. I always like that. Okay, I don't know why. Um, Anyway, (laughs) 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. This is the part I don't like in light of next week's ceremony. I, I, I have always, I've always told you know, in marital account, you've got to leave you know, your, your parents behind. And now I'm thinking, I'm rethinking this whole thing. But uh, anyway, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And so from one, you make one, but they come back together to be one. And that is God's picture of sexuality and human uh, in, in marriage. Okay. Now, but notice in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So I want you to catch this. Prior to uh, the fall of mankind, when sin entered the world, there was no shame attached to sexuality. There was absolutely no sense in any way which God wasn't pleased with that or whatever. I like the quote I put there in your note sheet by uh, Lewis Smedes where he says, God did not wince when Adam, in seeing Eve, was moved to get close to her. You know, it's like, oh no, what have I done? Um, And so there was was just absolutely no shame. Now, it's an interesting thing, because the more we know about the human body, the more we understand how we are created for pleasure. That the more we've studied uh, human sexual anatomy, we understand that, that much of sexuality has nothing to do with procreation, that we are actually designed, male and female, uh, with pleasure centers. We're designed specifically so that we can experience pleasure uh, during the sexual uh, encounter. Uh, let me just give you a couple examples. I'm going to move quickly here because some of you are going to squirm at this. But uh, at least they did last week. But, uh, you know, there was a famous uh, uh, report on human sexuality many years ago, uh, Masters and Johnson. And they did, you know, a, a lot of interesting research with that. But, for, for example, they discovered that on the female body, the woman's body, there are 34 erogenous zones. Now, you stop and think about it. That's a lot of zones. In fact, you know, it's like I didn't even think any of our bodies had 34 zones on them, you know? So that's a lot of zones. 
that God has intentionally created to be pleasure zones, if you will, okay? Um, that, uh, what, something else they came up in their study is they discovered that during uh, the sexual experience, that uh, for a male, that uh, during the uh, orgasm, that he actually has spasms at a rate of 1.1 every 0.8 seconds. Now just stop and think about that for a second. I mean, we're talking about a lot of thought that God has created. Some of you are going, I can't believe he said. <laughs> I, I can't. Did you hear what he said? He said that O word. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> oh my. Okay. Let's move on. Um, the, the reason I bring that up is because God spent a lot of thought and intentionality designing the pleasure centers of our body. And, and I think oftentimes we, we almost think that it was like an accident or something, you know? But when you study, you just begin to see how much thought he has put into this. There in your note sheet, I put a uh, quote from Dr. Ed and his wife, Gay Wheat, who wrote the book uh, Intended for Pleasure. They are Christians. He's a medical doctor. God, God's plan for our pleasure has never changed. And we realize this even more as we consider how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. When we discover the many intricate details of our bodies, which provide so many intense, wonderful physical sensations for husbands and wives to enjoy together, we can be sure that he intended for us to experience full satisfaction in the marriage relationship. And so uh, from Genesis 2, God created us as sexual beings, no shame, from one to one to become one. Now, let's look at the next passage. It really talks about the kind of eroticism of uh, sex. And it, it's in a second, uh, I mean, it's not second, uh, Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Now, now, the Song of Solomon has many passages like this, but this is just, you know, one of my favorites. I memorized it. No. Um, just kidding. This is a, a passage where the man is, is looking at his woman, his, uh, his lover, and he is describing her to her. Now, I want to tell you right off the bat that, that these are not, I don't think, very effective pickup lines today. Okay? Uh, as we go through this, I just want to give you a hot tip. I know it's the Word of God, but... It's not very useful in that way. But he, he is looking at this woman that he loves, his, his lover, and he, uh, he is describing her. And I want you to catch this. He is describing her from the bottom up. Okay? In other words, he, he's going to start with her feet and then move up her body. I don't want you to miss that movement. Okay? And the reason is it's a very sensual passage. I think we, we often think about sensuality. We don't think of God and sensual together. It's a very sensual passage, and so let's just follow along. Again, I, I can't relate to all these compliments, but. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. You're graceful. See, he starts with the feet. Now he's moving to the legs. So we're kind of following his gaze, so to speak. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a, gra a craftsman's hand. So I can understand that, jewels. So that sounds pretty good. But this next one throws me. Your navel is like a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Okay, whatever. <laughs> it gets worse. Uh, 
Your waist is like a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Does that sound like, like a turn on to you? I mean, really, you know, baby, that waist, you look like a mound of wheat. I'm telling you. Yeah, I'm telling you. We got Wheaties all over that thing, you know? We just, and, and you know, encircled by lilies. Like, what's that, you know? Good. Okay. Now, the next one I, I can understand a little better. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Then you see he's moving up the body now? Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes, still moving up, are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabin. Now this next one, this is a stretch. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. I just don't get that one. Have you ever been over by the coast where, by where the SDG&E plant used to be and there's that huge tower over there? I just always imagine that. It's like, here she is, Tower of Lebanon. You know, it's kind of like Pinocchio's sister. You know, I don't know. Anyway. But you know, I don't think it's the details that are so important. It's the concept here I want you to catch. Okay, verse 5. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your, I don't know if that means like it's really big, big or what. I don't, I've been on Mount Carmel. It's a big mountain. Okay, your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held uh, captive by its tresses. So now he's kind of described her from, the, from her feet to the, for her hair. He's gone through kind of up her whole body. Okay, now verse 6. Now how beautiful you are and how pleasing, O oh love, with your delights. Now here it gets really erotic here. He says, now your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like the clusters of fruit. And I said, I will climb that palm tree and I will take hold of its fruit. Okay? We're getting fairly graphic, aren't we? You know? I always wonder if this guy was just like a short guy or what. You know? It's like, like where are you starting from? You know? It's like, well, whatever, you know? It's like Danny DeVito, you know? <laughs> okay. May your breasts be like clusters of the vine. All right. And the fragrance of your breath like, uh, like apples and your mouth like the best wine. And so he's just saying, you know, boy, I'm ready to come and get it. Okay, now her response is, sorry, honey, I have a headache. No, just kidding. Uh, just kidding. No, look at her response. He, she says, come on. She says, may the wine go straight to my lover flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. What I want you to catch is, is all humor aside, is you get a very descriptive passage of a man and his wife and he just says, you are just beautiful to me and he describes her beauty and how he desires her and she says, oh, that sounds so good. Come and get it, you see. It's a beautiful picture of, of sexual love and of, uh, of romantic love and of true treasuring of one another. And I, I think it's important that we really embrace these passages 
Because otherwise, we'll never understand God's view. Somebody's got all these crazy ideas in our mind about sexuality. We just got to get them out. Now, the next one I want you to turn to is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we do this little trek through the Bible. Moving into the New Testament to the right in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, in this passage, we, we find that in marriage, that sex is not only permitted, uh, that it's actually commanded. It, it's something you're not to neglect from one another. Uh, so a very positive view of sexuality. And uh, chapter, in verse 1, um, by the way, the Corinthians uh, had come out of a highly sex culture, very sexual culture. And uh, so now that they are Christians, they're wondering, is that a good thing? Should we abstain from sexuality now that we've kind of cleaned up our lives? And, and Paul says, no, 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 no. If you're married, you need to, to really participate this in this. And in fact, you, you really owe this to one another. It's part of, it's part of your uh, responsibility to one another. So he says, now in the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. Of course, he was single. He, he thought that that was the most effective way to serve the Lord. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. And the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. So you're one. You belong to one another. And on the other hand, in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. So do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, there's a limited time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come together again, in other words, get back to your normal sexual relationship so that Satan will not tempt you uh, because of your lack of self-control. And so Paul says, no, 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 if you're married, this is a good thing and you belong to one another, you need to make that a, a regular part of your, your married life. It's interesting, a couple months ago, I read a book uh, that was called a Return to Modesty. And it's by a, a secular author, uh, actually a Jewish lady, uh, named Wendy Shalit. Wendy's a young lady, about 27, I believe, and she's written a lot for the New York Times and other secular publica publications. And in this book, uh, Return to Modesty, it's really not about, you know, you, you think of it, you think, oh, it's all about how to dress modestly, but it's really not. It's primarily about uh, the damage that promiscuity has done in our culture in the last 30 years. And she's writing for her generation. She's a 20-something, and she's basically saying, let me tell you what promiscuity has done to ruin my generation, and especially women of my generation. And she's a, a very, uh, very bright uh, lady, a uh, very witty lady. It's a lot of fun to read the book. But in there, she talks about this conception that, that uh, many times in the past that uh, sexuality has been viewed as a negative thing. Often it's portrayed that, that religion is anti-sex, anti and God is anti-sex. And to make her point that that is not the case, that that is true sometimes but often not the case, she quotes a, a famous uh, Jewish scholar made, named uh, Maimonides. And uh, he was a, a scholar in the 12th century. He was a kind of a philosopher, uh, wrote a lot of uh, 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 commentary on the Mishnah and different Jewish writings. And uh, we're going to put this on the screen. And, and, and in here, I just want you to get the feel of this. Here's a 12th century Jew. He's writing to explain what, what wives should expect of their husbands sexually, according to the Mishnah, uh, the Jewish uh, traditions. And so it's just kind of fun. I thought you'd get a kick out of this. Okay, so, so this is what a husband owes his wife. For the men who are healthy and live in comfortable and pleasurable circumstances, in other words, kind of a fat cat, uh, without having to perform work that would weaken their strength, and they only eat and drink and sit idly in their homes, their conjugal schedule is every night, you know? No excuse not to, okay? That's what you owe your wife. Now, 
For the laborers, these would be people like tailors and weavers, masons and the like, their conjugal schedule is twice weekly if their work is in the same city. Now, if it's you know, in a different city, it's just once a week, he says. Okay, let's move on. Now here, poor donkey drivers, okay? <laughs> I'm telling you, just riding those donkeys takes it out of you, okay? He says, for the donkey <laughs> for the donkey drivers, their schedule is once a week, and for the camel drivers, once in 30 days, okay? You do not want to marry a camel driver is the point of this thing. And now there's something you want to know. What do you drive anyway? You know horses, donkey, camels, you ever ride camels? Okay. Now he says, for the learned. Now this is kind of funny, for the learned. What, what he means here is like rabbis, okay? People who study the Torah, you know, we call them pastors or whatever. <laughs> oh, skip that last part, okay. For the learned, it's once a week because the study of God's word, the Torah, weakens their strength. Now, it is the practice of the learned to have conjugal relations every Friday night. Now, wait a second. Yeah, go back to the last one, please. Uh, PowerPoint, yeah, but, okay. okay, let's hold this in. Okay. For rabbis, you have sex once a week. Every Friday night. Now, what is Friday night? Shabbat. Shabbat. It's Sabbath, right? <laughs> now, wouldn't you think, in our normal mindset, if you're going to have sex once a week, you would take a break on the Sabbath? I mean, it's the day of rest, right? That's not how they looked at it. They looked at it as, hey, that is the best day, you see? The best for the best. See what a positive view of sexuality that is? So different than what we often think. Okay, let's go on. Now, this is really great. A wife may restrict her husband in his business journeys so that he would not otherwise deprive her of her conjugal rights. Hence, he may not set out except with her permission. <laughs> I'm sorry, dear. Tell the boss that this is not a good week. All right? Just tell him, I need you here. All right. Now, this is, it gets even better. Similarly, she may prevent him from exchanging an occupation involving a frequent conjugal schedule for involving an infrequent one. <laughs> Honey, I'm on the internet. This is a great job offer. Well, let's, let me think. No, that won't work. That's, you're traveling too much on that one. So. But isn't that interesting? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans chapter, uh, I mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, this is your right and your responsibility to one another. And if you're married, this needs to be a, a regular part of your life. Far from being like an evil thing, now that you've become Christians, you should limit. He says, no, it's exactly the opposite. As Christians, you should make this a regular part of your life to help you pursue God in a holy way. You see? So, okay. The next passage we look at a couple more here quickly. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 4. To the right in your Bible. Now this one is really interesting because it shows us how crafty Satan can be. Here's Satan's scheme. And this has just dawned on me the last couple weeks as I've been studying this. It's like, wow, that is really tricky. That is really, really, that's really worked well. It's been an effective tactic. What he does is Satan comes to Christians and he gets them to believe that they're not supposed to enjoy sex. And so all of a sudden they get this negative view of sex and then no one wants to become Christians because they think there's this negative view of sex. And all in all, you find out that this whole idea that sex is a bad thing didn't come from God, it came from Satan. 
And that's what this passage will teach. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says, The Spirit, Holy Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by whom? Demons. Demons. That's very important. Okay, so he says in the last times, there's going to be uh, teachers that rise up. They teach demonic teachings. Now, this will be very interesting to see what is this demonic teaching he's predicting. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Here, here it goes. They forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods. Now, is that what you expect Satan to try to trip people up with? Okay, abstain people from marriage? No, I mean, in certain parts of the church, uh, the, the Christian church, I mean, you can't even be a leader today, you know, without being celibate, right? And... And, and often in the name of, well, this is the only way to serve God. And what this is saying is exactly the opposite, that that is sort of satanic inspiration. Now, I want you to be real clear here that obviously Paul said it's often a good thing to remain single and that often God calls people to, certain people to that to serve him more effectively. So it can be a great thing if God calls you to it. But the point is what they are saying, what these false teachers are saying, is that sexuality is a bad thing, therefore you should not get married. You will defile yourself. He says that is a satanic origin. So this whole concept that we have that sexuality is a bad thing, it did not come from God. It actually comes directly from Satan. And he goes on and he says, uh, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. Remember when he created the world, he kept on saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. So he says, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God. In other words, he said it was good and by prayer, by our thanksgiving. So he says in our lives, that, uh, that when it comes to marriage or food or whatever, these sorts of things, that it's a gift of God, it's, it's been blessed by God, it's for our enjoyment, we're to receive it with thanksgiving. And anything that would teach us otherwise is straight from hell, straight from the pit. Okay, now one last passage, and I, I printed this one there for you on your note sheet from Ephesians chapter 5. We could take this one last step and say this, that, that in the Bible... Human sexuality actually becomes a picture of the intimacy that God wants with his people. So that God actually takes up kind of uh, the, the, the picture of sexuality, a man and a woman uniting sexually as a picture, a metaphor of the closeness and intimacy that he desires with us as his people. So far from being a negative thing, it becomes a metaphor for the highest thing. There in your note sheet, uh, Paul teaches this in Ephesians chapter 5. He quotes from Genesis 2 that we looked at earlier. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's what we looked at earlier. And then he comments. He says, this is a profound mystery. He says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. You see, the, the unity between a man and a wife in marriage become a picture of the unity between Christ and his people. Isn't that amazing? So far from sex being a negative thing, it is actually a beautiful picture of a far greater spiritual reality. So as we kick off this series on sex and the single life, I thought it was important for us to start with just laying some foundation. What does the Bible teach about it? Because otherwise, Satan comes and he tries to get us to believe that he knows how sex works best, that if we follow him, we'll get the most and the best sex. And so he tries to like take God's gift and take credit for it and all the time discrediting God in the process, you see. And so he gets us 
uh, off guard at the beginning, questioning whether God really loves us and he has our best interests in mind. And that puts us in a vulnerable spot. And so we want to take some time and just clear the slate there of the truth of the matter. Now, let's move on. We've, so there are four points. We looked at one. I told you the first one would take a long time. I was keeping my, I kept my word. Um, now, we're going to move much faster now. Number two. The second principle goes like this, that our sex drive is one of our strongest drives and it has the power to make or break us. Our sex drive is one of our strongest drives. It has the power to make or break us. Now, it's important that when I, when I talk about the sex drive throughout this series, I want you to hear this. I'm not talking just about the physical side of sex, the physical desire for intimacy. I'm talking about something much larger that includes that, but it's much bigger. I'm talking about the desire to unite, the desire to be one with another person. It is a thing that when you start falling in love with someone, you start feeling that chemistry with someone, that is a sexual urge. That is a sexual uh, 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 kind of a dynamic that's going on there. And, and you can tell because if you just follow it out, it ends up sleeping with someone. It always does. You know, it's like if you just kind of did whatever came naturally, uh, that desire to hold hands you know, or to be close to someone just leads there. It's all part of the package deal. So when I talk about the sexual drive, I'm talking about the, the whole big experience, emotional and physical side of this thing. It's one of our strongest drives. It has the power to make or break us. In a lot of ways, sex is like a fire that it has both the power to warm us and the power to burn us, you see? And, and so it can be a, one of the greatest blessings, you know, if you're sitting around a campfire at Yosemite late at night, it's just so great, you know, sit around the fire, you feel the warmth, it's such a, a great thing, or to sit in front of your fireplace in the cold winter night and enjoy that flame, it's just, you know, you're sitting there with a, uh, a glass of whatever you like to drink or whatever, and it's just a great thing. But right now, as the fires have been burning in, in, in Yellowstone, it can be very destructive. So sex is like that. It has the power to make us or break us. There in your note sheet, I put a quote from Dr. Archibald Hart as a Christian psychologist, and he said, given its intensity, our sex drive can lay waste to everything in its path, including honor, reputation, families, virginity, fidelity, chastity, good intentions, lifelong promises, and spiritual commitments. And you know, what I've seen is that because it's such a strong drive, that especially spiritually, it becomes a huge test for us as Christians. It becomes a battleground for us. In other words, that if you can show me a person's sexual commitments, someone's a Christian, it tells me a lot about their, who they are spiritually. It's almost a litmus test of their commitment because such a strong drive, someone who has submitted that drive to Jesus probably has a really deep commitment to Jesus, you see? But someone who has not submitted that drive to Jesus is not going to be close to Jesus, no matter how it looks on the outside. You see, it's sort of a litmus test. Uh, there's a couple uh, quotes there on your note sheet that I think are worth looking at. Uh, one is from uh, Dr. Cloud and Townsend, their latest book, or one of the recent books, Boundaries and Dating, which is a really good book if, you, if you're looking for a book on that topic. But look what they say. They said, um, there are a few better tests of, for whether or not someone lives a life in submission to God than what he or she does with their sexuality. Sex is such a powerful and meaningful desire that to give it up and obey God in that area is a true sign of worship. 
It's a true sign that someone is willing to say, not my will, but thine be done. So this becomes a litmus test for who rules one's life. You see? Um, Elizabeth Elliot wrote the great book, Passion and Purity. If you've never read that book, highly recommend it. But she says, if there's an enemy of souls, and I have, no, I, have, I have not the slightest doubt that there is, one thing he cannot abide is the desire for purity. Hence, a man or woman's passions become his battleground. The love life of a Christian is a crucial battleground. And catch this, there, if nowhere else, it will be determined as to who is Lord, the world, the self and the devil, or the Lord Christ. You see, that what we do in our sexuality, our area of sexuality, will make us or break us spiritually. It is that critical. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. Now, number three. Let's talk a little bit about the purpose of sexuality. The purpose of sex is total oneness. That's what it's all about. That's why God created it. Now, we looked earlier that when God created man, he created uh, the human race, he created the male and female. And they, they from one uh, to, be, to become two, to, be, to come back to be one. It's this idea of, uh, of one fleshness, of almost like one um, organism, like a, a lock and a key work together. Neither is valuable without the other. That's sort of uh, oneness. Uh, the, the bow and the violin. You've got a violin and the, and the bow that you play it on. They, they work together without one another. They don't, you know, it's not really... Uh, it's not really effective. And so that's the idea. That God, you know, from, from one creates two to, to make one. And that every time that we have a, a wedding today, what it is, it's a reenactment of that creative process. You see, where God is taking from two and he's making one. However, there's supposed to be a natural order to this whole thing. Um, and it's supposed to go like this. A couple meets each other, and they begin to spend time together and develop a friendship. And as that happens, there's a progressive emotional connection that takes place, right? Uh, at least that's what should be happening. It's the ever-deepening of, uh, of oneness that is happening is, is you share part of your soul, they share part of your soul, you exchange it. I call it exchanging pieces of pie. You know, it's like you think of your life as a circle, and the first time you meet, you say, here's a piece of my pie, and I have a piece of your pie. And so now you say, hey, that tastes really good. And so now there's a part of you that you've shared with me, you see. And the more we get to know one another, the more, we, you know, the, the more we're sharing the, uh, each other's uh, lives and our inner worlds. Okay, as that's going on, um, uh, as, that's, as that's going on, as people are uh, sharing that, what's happening is soulmates are being formed. You see, the more we share our souls, that's how soulmates uh, get formed. And, uh, and so there's this oneness that is happening at an emotional level. Now, at a certain point in the process, a couple comes to a point where, where you say, you mean so much to me that I do not want to live the rest of my life without you, you see? And so at this point, I am, I'm willing to commit myself for the rest of my life to you. Now, what that does is it gives the relationship security, you see? Now it provides a, a, a place where love can really grow. There's a protection there because it's hard to share yourself with someone you're not sure is going to be there tomorrow. Are you following me on this? Okay, so we've got this emotional connection. Now we've got a, com a connection of the wills. Uh, com a connection of commitment. And it's at that point, now God says, okay, when, when those things are in order, 
You've connected emotionally. You've connected in your wills and your commitment. Now it's time to connect you physically, you see? And when you connect physically in sex, there is a bonding that happens. That's the way God's designed sex. There's like a weld of between souls that happens when you have sex with someone. And so there's this bonding and this connection, and it's meant to be the final step of taking two people who've connected emotionally, connected at the level of will, and now they connect physically and bonds them together. It's kind of this final step of oneness. Now, that's how it's supposed to be. Now, what happens when we connect with someone out of God's order? Well, what happens is the weld still takes. The bond still works. The superglue still sticks. You see? The, I mean, sex just does bond. And so it works whether you're married or not. That's why couples will say, we feel so much closer so we had sex. Well, of course. Of course you do. It is superglue. It works well. The problem is, what happens when you leave, the, when that person that you bonded to leaves you, what happens then? Well, I'll tell you what happens. There is a ripping that takes place. And what happens is that ripping takes place, is that separation takes place, is they take part of you with them, and you take part of them with you. And you are diminished as a person. I think of it as your soul becoming more shallow, thinner, stretched. I'll probably talk about this later on in this series, but in the Lord of the Rings, you know, Tolkien's famous, uh, famous uh, you know, fantasy world or whatever, there are these nine lords who have these special rings of power that allows them to live forever. But what happens is over time, though they live forever, they get, their souls get stretched until they become like wraiths or ghosts. So they live forever, but you can see through them. And I thought what a beautiful picture, or appropriate picture maybe, of sexuality. That as we give ourselves to someone else and that relationship breaks, they take a part of us, we take a part of them and we, we become more shallow for the experience. I think of it, I recently read a novel by uh, James Michener called uh, Chesapeake, and a lot of it takes place around this one particular island in Virginia, this small island, really, and over the hundreds of years of the novel, one of the problems they have to face is that as the storms beat against this island, it keeps eroding over time, and this island becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And as I was just reading that a few weeks ago, and preparing for this series, I thought, what an incredible picture of what sexuality outside marriage does. Is it, it bonds us, and then it rips us, and over time it rips more and more away, and our essence, our soul, becomes stripped down. Now there in your note sheet, uh, we have some quotes back. We're going to look at the first one on PowerPoint, where some people that talk about this and how this works. Um, and so here we go. The first one is from uh, the book Fresh Start by Bob Burns and Tom White. It's a really good book on healing from divorce. I'd really highly recommend it. But he says, sexuality is a human potential for sharing one's life with another. It is the ability and need imprinted upon our nature by the creator to give ourselves completely to another human being. It's also the need and ability to receive another person into our own life completely. The romantic expression, body and soul, perhaps says it best. I have the ability and need to give myself, all of myself, the body and soul of myself to another person. I have the ability and need to receive another, all of another, 
the body and soul of another into my life. This understanding of sexuality helps us to gain a correct understanding of sexual intercourse. It's the symbol or emblem of the total life sharing that God requires those who marry. In sexual intercourse, one person actually enters the body of another, an outward expression of what exists between the souls of two people who are totally committed to one another. Understood this way, intercourse is lifted out of the merely physical realm. The spiritual aspect is what makes sex unique in all of God's creation. Now there on your note sheet is a quote from Lewis Smead's book, Sex for Christians, uh, is a, a scholar up at uh, Fuller Seminary. And he says, what we experience in our sexuality is a need for communion. You see, that's what it's about. It happens on the biological level as a need for pleasure and release. But the biological experience is only the substratum of the whole sexual urge. What we want in sexual satisfaction is to be close to somebody, to share the most intimate kind of exposure of ourselves, to give ourselves in spontaneous and uncontrolled trust to one another. And what we, what we want then is the height and depth uh, and, inter, uh, and personal communion and security. So see, sex is all about oneness. And one more quote, and this was on PowerPoint. This is by C.S. Lewis, who just has a great thing to say about it. He says, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism, for that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And the Christians believe that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact, just as one is stating a fact when he says that a lock and a key are one mechanism, or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that his two halves, the male and female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. See that unity. Now, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual kind, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not try to isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing or digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again, you see? So do you catch this concept of oneness that God created? It's from one to be shared. And that oneness, God's view, is that oneness to be on every level. So there would be, first of all, a deep emotional sharing of souls that connects, leading to a deep commitment, a lifetime commitment, which gives security to the relationship, you see? And then finally, then you add the cement, the glue, the welding, the bond of, of sexuality to wrap it up as a package deal. Whenever we try to separate it out, it still connects us. But when we break up with that person, there is a ripping, a diminishing of our, ourselves. Okay. Now, the last point goes like this. The sexual purity, uh, as you study the Bible, is incredibly important to God. And you can begin to understand why now. Because it is so destructive, God takes no compromise on this issue. I remember a few years ago, I was talking to a woman uh, at the gym one day and uh, didn't know her well. 
but uh, she knew who I was, and so we started talking. And uh, she was, uh, shared her story. She was uh, a Christian woman, and she had gone through a divorce a couple years before, and, and of course, been a very hard thing. And uh, she was, had begun, after a while, going back into the dating world, which a lot of you know how hard that is. Uh, and so uh, she said the one thing that shocked her was as how the rules of sexuality had changed. Because she got married young, and she's kind of mid-30s. Um, and so she said, man, you know, it's just such a sexually active world out there. I mean, pretty much everyone I go out with, every guy I want to expects to have sex. That's the sort of thing. And, and she said, you know what? And, and the thing that shocked me is that the Christian guys are often just as bad. And she said, in fact, many times they're worse. And so we talked about that some. I've talked to Christian men who will tell me the same thing from the other side. Talked to a Christian man not long ago who was talking about early on in his Christian life and how he was in a dating relationship. And, and he told the lady that he, he didn't want to have sex before marriage because of his Christian commitments. And she, she just told him, well, I'm not going to have sex. You know, I mean, if you don't have sex with me, we're not getting married. I mean, it's just like, I just won't do that. And that, that was a big test for him early in his, his Christian life. And it's amazing to me how in the Christian community that we have rationalized this issue. Because there's one issue that the Bible is just crystal clear on. In fact, in fact, I think we could safely say that it's impossible to walk with Jesus and not take him seriously in the standard. We might think we're walking with Jesus, but the Bible is very clear. In 1 John it says, he who says that I know him but does not do what he says is a liar and the truth is not in him. And the Bible is just really clear on this. We're going to look at two passages as we uh, kind of finish up today that help us to understand how serious an issue this is for God and for our walk with him. And so the first one is there on your note sheet. I put it there because it was so important. I wanted to make sure you had it, even if you've forgotten your Bible or it's your first time or whatever. It comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writing to brand new Christians. Only been Christian a few weeks, uh, maybe a month or two at the most. And he says, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Now, underline that phrase, how to please God, okay? That's going to be very important for later on. I'll have you underline certain things. He says, we told you how to live in order to please God. This is what it takes. As, in fact, you are living. Now, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know uh, what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's the next one. It is God's will. Now, I want you to underline that. It is God's will. So, pretty clear that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So when he, when he starts to talk to him about pleasing God, the first thing he lays down, and you see this throughout the New Testament, is often the first thing. The first thing he says, you're going to be serious about pleasing God. If you're serious about finding God's will for your life, first thing is deal with sexual immorality. Okay, you've got to deal with that. That each of you should learn to control his body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Now, underline the next phrase. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. Now, to me, it's very significant because there's very few places in the New Testament where a statement is that clear. That God will punish you for, these, this, for doing this. This is one of them. Okay? So very strongly. As we've already told you before and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, catch this, underline this next one. He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God. Okay, so 
if you want to blow this one off, no, I don't think so, or it's 2,000 years ago, or I don't think it's that big a deal, or I think God will understand, well, I'll just do it, and God will forgive me later, or whatever we do, he says, hey, you're rejecting this, just to be real clear, you're not rejecting man, you're rejecting God, okay, that's what you're doing. Now, four quick observations, let's fill in the blanks there, I just want to highlight four things from this passage. Number one, when it comes to pleasing Jesus, sexual purity is a non-negotiable. Hey, we saw this. You want to please God? It's his first thing. You got to deal with sexual morality. That's like number one thing. Okay? Number two, if you want to know God's will for your life, it starts with a commitment to sexual purity. You know, if I were to ask, take a little poll here, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm going to say, how many of you want to know God's will for your life today? Right? I, I mean, I would guess that 80, 90% of you would say, oh, absolutely, I want God's will for my life. But see, the irony is, is that he's telling us what his will for our life is right here. And, and here's the next point. If you think that God is going to tell you more of his will for your life, when you're not doing what he's already told you, you're just in la-la land, you know? I'm a parent. Let's say that I, I, I tell my daughter, I want you in by midnight, okay? And uh, she says, um, I'm not really interested in that one, Dad. Um, what's, what's rule number two? What am I going to do? I mean, okay, well, okay, you don't want to do one. Oh, that's okay. Let me give you number two. Let's see if we can find one you like, you know? What am I going to do? I'm going to say, wait, 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 time out here. We don't go on to number two until you get number one. And it's called number one because it's most important, right? And, and once you get number one down, then we'll talk about number two. And so many times in our lives, I think we come to the Lord and we say, God, would you show me, should I change jobs or should I date this person or, or should I, you know, should I change careers or do you want me to move? And we ask for God's, we want to know your will for our life. And he's, what do you know what God's saying? I'll tell you what, when you get number one down, you come on back, we'll talk about number two. See? In the meantime, we're just wasting both of our time. Okay, number three. Third, third uh, quick observation is that God will discipline us for disobedience in this area. We saw that. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. We warned you. Don't mess with God in this area. If you have messed with God in this area and you're a Christian, you know that you get spanked. You know, it's just not a pleasant thing. And so that's the third thing we need to know. And then number four, if you reject this, you're rejecting the Holy Spirit. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.